2: that one person in, in your little corner of the world that you're consistently and constantly praying for that they would come to saving faith in the knowledge of Jesus Christ is it a son, a daughter, a mother, a father a brother, a sister, is it a coworker, a classmate What does that mean about the hand of God? Romans 9, beginning verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. So here's what I just want to say before we... Blow past that verse. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, what we believe and teach is that the Holy Spirit of God has indwelt you. As a result of that, that means when you are encountered with truth and falsehood, the Holy Spirit of God in you, God in you, either bears witness with the truth or shouts out in your inner being, Alert! This is not true. And so you have that ability if you're a follower of Christ. Now, how do you develop that? You've gotten into God's word. You're seeking to grow. You understand the scriptures. You spend time with him in prayer. But as a result of that, when you're in a church and you're hearing things that are taught that are not of God, you should hear that alert because the Holy Spirit of God in you does not bear witness with that. And when you begin to see God move, oh, you should just feel an inner urge. So when I begin to see God moving and, and when I see students and adults from across the country lining up on sidewalks to get into a building in, in Wilmore, Kentucky, man, I, I want to get there. I want to be a part of that. I, I just want to fan the flames because my spirit bears witness that God is doing something there. And so this is not overly complicated, folks. You don't have to have a theology degree. You don't have to be a PhD in anything to know that the Bible tells you that God will speak into your life and bear witness to the truth. So he goes on to say, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I I could wish I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sonship. Theirs is divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. From them is traced the the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. What is he saying? Man, I am emotionally evoked over the reality that those who are like me, those who are from my heritage, they've not all responded to the hope of Christ. Now, I'm going to end with this in a moment, but we should learn something from Paul. The salvation of other people should be something that moves the emotions in us. So I want to be very clear, if you're a follower of Christ, if you've come to that place where you understood that God chose you and in response you chose Jesus Christ, that should have been an emotional thing in your life, not just emotional, but it certainly shouldn't have been less than emotional, right? You realize God picks you up, he turns you around, he places your feet on solid ground, he changes you, he snatched you out of that highway to hell and put you on a pathway to heaven. That should move you. But after that's moved you, it should burden you about those in your corner of the world who don't have that same pathway. And so Paul says it does. He he says, I don't understand. I mean, all of my peers, all these other Jewish people that have rejected Christ, my heart yearns for them. If I could trade places with them, I would. A parent understands that, don't we? You see a child making a choice that's not the right choice. They're dishonoring God. They're rebelling against him. They're a prodigal. You'd say, oh, if I could just take away their pain, if I could step in their spot. And then he lists, I'm not going to go through these, but he lists eight things that are benefits, eight reasons the Jewish people should understand that Jesus is the hope, that he's the Messiah. But he says they don't. And so then he addresses these four questions that probably... Jews and Gentiles alike are dealing with. How does the hand of God impact the salvation of individuals? So let's just jump in. Four questions about the hand of God. Number one, he says, Has God failed? So, in the Old Testament, again, you, you've been maybe to one Sunday school class or to vacation Bible school, and you've, you've heard this. God chose the children of Israel. He began a covenant relationship with Abraham. We just sang about that as we worshiped together this morning. God covenanted with his people. Now, since all of them did not follow Jesus in his ultimate plan, does that mean that God failed? Are the promises of God true? Can he be trusted? That's what Paul's addressing. Look at it beginning in verse 6. It's not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, not because they are his descendants. Are all they Abraham's children? On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the physical by phys- the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children by the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now, let me just stop there. We could spend a lot of time unpacking this. But what is he saying? This is not something that takes place just because of physical birth. It has always been about a promised relationship with God. So if it was not just by physical birth for the Jewish people, guess what that means? It's not just by physical birth for your Baptist children or grandchildren. Occasionally, I'll come in contact with someone, and I would talk to them about their faith, and I would say, hey, if you're standing before God in heaven, and he would say, why, why should I let you in? What would you say? And they may say something like this. Well, my, my granddaddy was a Methodist preacher, or, or my uncle was a deacon out at the Baptist church, or, or my mama was in the church every time the doors were open." And it's in those moments that I try to take a deep breath and be reserved, but I want to say, I didn't ask about your granddaddy or your uncle or your mama. I'm asking about you. The apostle Paul is saying, hey, I want you to understand the promises of God have not failed because from the beginning, God has done what he promised all the way back to Abraham and Sarah. Remember when he said, in a year, I'm going to send someone and you're going to have a child even though you're an old man and she's an old woman? And God did exactly that. He's always related to people through his promise. Go down to verse 10. He says, not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it's written, Jacob I loved and Esau I've hated. And man, people have looked at that last verse and debated that and used that as kind of a a bully rod and 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 use it just to confuse folks. And and what was Paul saying? What is the Holy Spirit saying to us? Well, he's saying, Does God know all that's going to happen? Absolutely. He's sovereign. It's like I say to you often: has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? He knows exactly how things are gonna unfold. that doesn't mean he's failed in his promises we could spend so much more time but let me just suffice it to say has God failed and the answer is no number two is God fair is God fair Happy Easter! This is Paul Purvis, and I want to invite you to celebrate the risen Christ with me and my family at Mission Hill Church on Easter weekend. You can join us on our central campus beginning at noon on Good Friday, and on Easter Sunday morning at nine or ten forty-five. We're going to be talking about the reality that if the grave is empty, then anything is possible. Again, I hope to see you Easter Sunday morning at nine or ten forty-five. For more info, check out Mission Hill. Dot org. Look at verse 14. What shall then we say? Is, is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Is God fair? Well, first of all, let me just say, fair is not in the Bible. Fair is not a doctrine. Fair is not a character trait of God. So really what Paul was asking, is God just? Does he always do what is right? And what's his answer? Sure he does. Of course he does. He talks about mercy. He talks about God's compassion. And and really what he's saying is, I want you to think for a second. Are you suggesting that if if you were in charge, if it was your hand and not the hand of God, you would be more merciful than he was? That, That you would make better decisions than he does? That your purposes would prevail in a better way than his purposes? No. he says is God fair that's the wrong question that's the wrong question God is just I just want to keep moving real quickly so does that mean is the whole thing fixed is the whole thing fixed like is the fix in I mean does it matter what we do that's really the issue isn't it Does it matter? Can I cry out to God for my mother or my father or my son or my daughter or my co-worker or my neighbor? Can I cry out to God for revival? Will he hear? Does it matter? Is this whole thing fixed? Look at verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who's able to resist his will? So all throughout this, Paul's just answering these objections that he hears being asked. So some of you are saying, this whole thing's fixed, isn't it? Why, why, why do we have to do anything if God's already going to just bring about his will? But who are you, a human being to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved, the one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living god he goes on to quote isaiah but what is he saying he's making no mistake our god is sovereign this doctrine of election it's a part of who he is he knows what is taking place we have to embrace that, but we don't have to fully understand it. It's interesting. It's hard to find out who originally said this, whether it was Donald Gray Barnhouse or whether it was Charles Haddon Spurgeon or whether it was Dwight L. Moody. It's been attributed to all of them, but but it's been said, imagine that one day you're walking through the portals of heaven, and on one side, as you're walking in, you see that verse from the book of the Revelation, and it says, whosoever will may come, and you walk through into heaven and then as you glance back, you see on the other side that sign that says chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Are they both true? Yes. Do I understand how they both work together? No. Does God in his providence give us the opportunity to respond to his choosing in our life? Yes. And he gives examples of this in this passage. He gives the example, he turns us back to Exodus and he talks about the Pharaoh. Did you catch that? He said, did the Pharaoh not harden his heart? Now this is interesting because eventually in that account, remember there were a lot of plagues. God worked a lot to get the children of Israel out of Egypt. Eventually, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But you know what it says in the beginning? Pharaoh hardened his heart. You can't get away from Scripture that God gives us the opportunity to respond to what He's doing. His authority does not negate our responsibility. So we embrace the mystery. Is the whole thing fixed? No. One last question Is God faithful? Is God faith. What do you think, church? Yeah. Listen to Romans 9, verse 30. What well, then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it's written. See, I lay a stone in Zion that causes people to stumble on a rock that makes them fall. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Now, I've been reading from the New International Version, that translation of Scripture. There are different translations. There are also paraphrases of Scripture that kind of put it in our modern language. I I try to read through a lot of these as I study a passage. And so I was reading through this in the message. I I want you to hear from this paraphrase of Scripture how this passage is described. How can we sum this up? That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to take one of the most complex doctrines (laughs) that's dealt with in scripture and sum it up in just a few minutes how can we sum it up this is how the message puts beginning in verse 30 all those people who didn't seem interested in what god was doing actually embraced what god was doing as he straightened out their lives and israel who seemed so interested in reading and talking about what god was doing missed it how could they miss it because instead of trusting god they took over They were absorbed in what they themselves were doing. They were so absorbed in their God projects that they didn't notice God right in front of them like a huge rock in the middle of the road. And so they stumbled into him and went sprawling. Isaiah, again, gives us a metaphor for pulling this together. Careful, I've put a huge stone on the road to Mount Zion. A stone you can't get around. But the stone is me. If you're looking for me... You'll find me on the way, not in the way. What's Paul saying? There's a way to mess this thing up. You can make it all about you and think it's all about what you do. And you'll miss out on what God has created you for. But when you respond to him in faith... He will always, 100% of the time, without doubt, be faithful. Is God faithful? Say it together, church. Yes. Yes. So what's our response? And David Platt is a great teacher of the Scriptures. And he looked at this passage of Scripture, and he said, you know, really in Romans 9... There are three things we should see. Number one, we should long for the salvation of others, like Paul did. Man, I would give anything if I could trade places. I'm grieved because these Jews don't know Jesus. Number two, we should lean on the faithfulness of God. we got to trust Him. You, You have to decide, do I trust the hand of God? And then, we should live for the glory of God. We should live our lives in such a way that should the hand of God choose to rest on us, whether that be for salvation or whether that be for revival or whatever that be, that we are quick to give him glory. And let me apply this with us before we pray. What are some takeaways from this deep passage of Scripture? Number one, you can't miss this. Those of us in God's family should be burdened about those who are not in God's family. There are going to be some things in Scripture you may never understand. I know that's the case for me. I'm just not the sharpest tool in the shed. But there are some things you need to understand. And one of those is that God expects us to be burdened for those that don't yet know Him. So I want to ask you something today in the context of this season of revival around our world. Who's your one? Who's that one person in, in your little corner of the world that you're consistently and constantly praying for? That they would come to saving faith in the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Is it a son, a daughter, a mother, a father, a brother, a sister? Is it a coworker, a classmate? Write that name down and and make it an effort to regularly take that person before God because here's what I believe. As you cry out to God, you can move the hand of God. Number two, those of us who think we are in God's family probably should evaluate, are you in God's family? My friend Dennis is here with us today all the way from England, and I I love what he and another friend of mine, John, have have said together. They've they've said that a lot of us are quick to say yes to God, but we've not yet joined him in his mission. And and so you begin to ask, is it that simple? Is this just about life insurance? Can, Can I really... Follow after him if I don't begin to look to him and rely on his hand in my life. Paul was making it clear. Not everybody who knows about the things of God is a child of God. Number three. Those who desire to be a part of the family of God should always respond to him in faith. So. If you are a part of the family of God, I think one of your responses today is, God, what faith action are you calling me to take? Where are you calling me to move out and step out in faith? And it could be a variety of things. Is it to lead out spiritually in your marriage or as a parent? It it could be in your workplace to to stop being a covert agent and let people see that you have a love relationship with Jesus Christ. It it may be in the classroom. It may be in your neighborhood. It may be here in the church. It may be about some of those disciplines to spend time in his word or or to be passionate about prayer or to worship him more freely or, or to give as a good steward. Where is he asking you to step out in faith? Because, what this passage teaches—the truths that are intention—man, God's sovereign. He's going to do as He wills. He rules and reigns. And while we cannot deny God's authority, we must not diminish our responsibility. It said that John Piper, when he was 34 years old, was a college professor. And he was studying this passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 9, and he said as, as if the Lord spoke to him and said, I will not simply be analyzed, I must be adored. I will not simply be pondered, I want to be proclaimed. My sovereignty is not simply to be scrutinized, it is to be heralded. Let me put all that in my words. The right response to our wonder about God is always our worship of God. So I would ask you, what is the hand of God doing in and around you? When I think about this passage of scripture, sure. I think about things that I still don't understand. I think about how much bigger my God is than me. I think about my desires to see the hand of God move. And then I think, Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art a potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after Thy will. While I am waiting,
1: yielded and still. Oh, Lord, have Your way. You've been listening to The Barnabas Effect with Pastor Paul Purvis. The Barnabas Effect is here to provide listeners like you with biblical truth and spiritual encouragement. But it can't be done without your financial support